Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Sim Film Project. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. Tonight, I am joined. Dave couldn't make it tonight, unfortunately. Uh, he is out with his kids, uh, but um, uh, and his wife too, I believe. It's not like his kids are the only ones that count. You know, it's whole family outing. <laughs> but I think it's the kids that are causing him to be late. So that's why he's not here, and why I mention it. Um, but I'm joined tonight by Marie Prosser, who is our wonderful behind the scenes uh, producer here and uh, uh, one of the moderate the chief moderators of our discussion boards as well so uh, Marie thanks for joining me no thank you for inviting me uh, really looking forward to uh, uh, talking about some of these things with you. So tonight we're going to be doing two separate things. First, we're going to finish up our discussion of uh, episode one, which we we did most of episode one. The only thing we didn't get to was the it was the C plot, right? The 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 sort of minimum plot, uh, which was the Arathel plot. Right, the, the B-plot. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it was the B-plot, right. Was there a C-plot in the first one? Yes, oh. that was um, the other elves finding out about men. Ah, right, right, right. Which was more tied to the A-plot, so that's why we talked about that instead of the B-plot. Okay, right. So we got the B-plot, which we didn't talk about, which is Aravel and Gondolin. Uh, so we do want to make sure that we finish, discuss, we discuss that so we get that all set up for episode two, which we'll get to next session. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, we want to talk about the opening of the frame. Uh, we had the, the opening movie movement of the Inkanus in the Hared frame, uh, which I am still really excited about. I just love this frame idea. I think it's so cool. Um, so we're going to talk about that. So we're going to finish up episode one, and then we're going to talk about the worldviews of elves and men. We're going to be looking at some of the ways, because we want to not make assumptions. We want to kind of, I, I want to step back here, you know, while we're still, you know, near the beginning of discussing through these episodes and be thinking about Things, not, things not to take for granted. Basically, ways in which these meetings of elves and men, which are going to be very important, especially in the first half of the season, um, ways in which they look at things differently, that is going to really inform assumptions that they make about each other. Some of the, especially the early interactions, but even the way that it's going to kind, of, they're going to be kind of influencing influencing each other uh, over the course of the season as the as the two societies uh, sort of begin to intermingle there. Uh, in Beleriand, um, so uh, we'll 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 then get to some of these kind of larger theoretical questions, but which will have, I think, some really practical impact on uh, some of our storylines uh, during the course of the season. So, um, so that's the plan for tonight, and it's uh, you know, it's actually I was about to say it's an ambitious plan. They all seem like ambitious plans, but this is actually a little bit less ambitious than usual. I have to say. <laughs> It depends what you do with it. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Anyway, um, but first, a couple of announcements. Um, we've got a few uh, uh, a few uh, events uh, coming up here soon. On December 20th, Fireside Poetry for the Winter Solstice uh, is happening. Um, uh, that's the uh, uh, solstice celebration is a lot of fun. Uh, that's a community event, uh, a Signum community event, I believe, uh, that uh, um, uh, Sparrow is hosting. And as the, this has been like my recent sort of main thing is forgetting to share the slides on GoToWebinar. I don't know why I keep doing that, but I do. Okay, there we are. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that's happening on the 20th of December. We have, um, uh, the next script discussion for episode. So you guys are up to episode four, right? Discussing the outline for episode four. 
Um, and that's going to be happening on this coming Sunday, December 6th. Yes. Mm-hmm. And people can get uh, uh, links for the session there to join you guys live. Well, it'll be on the Twitch channel, right? So people can just come to it'll the, be Twitch, on the channel. Twitch channel. Mm-hmm. And if someone wants to join us in GoToWebinar, um, they can certainly uh, contact Nick or I or Rihanna to get the link for that. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, so you can always tune in to twitch.tv slash SignumU at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday the 6th uh, and check that out and uh, join in in the chat and stuff like that. So that's also a, a good option. We do have, of course, the Signum store. We have uh, uh, several new holiday designs as well as uh, a bunch of things. Many, many, many gift options in the Signum store, which I wanted to remind folks of. Uh, and, of course, to remind people that we have our uh, holiday uh, anytime audit gift certificate Um sale, uh, as we've done for the last few years. So uh, the Anytime Audits are, of course, the opportunity to receive all of the course materials of any one of our Signum courses, all of the lectures and uh, and all that, ki- all that stuff. Um, uh, to, so you, you get sort of the whole package of one of our Signum courses, like maybe one of Amy Sturridge's Star Wars courses, or, you know, one of my, uh, like my Tolkien's poetry course or whatever, you know, you're interested in. Um, and uh, it makes a really uh, fun and different uh, 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 Christmas present for, you know, people, uh, you know, friends and family who are, uh, you know, really into the kind of stuff that we teach at Signum. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty fun opportunity. So uh, definitely check that out uh, on our website, SignumUniversity.org. And the last thing that I would mention, uh, which is a big announcement I've been doing this week, is that we have just launched a brand new program called the Signum Academy Clubs. We are doing extracurricular clubs clubs uh, for kids in third grade through 12th grade. Uh, We're doing book clubs, creative writing workshops, uh, and language clubs, both immersive conversation clubs uh, in Spanish and also uh, translation clubs. Learn Anglo-Saxon. So that's going to be like like Beowulf uh, for high schoolers uh, to be able to get into it, even down into the middle school and elementary school uh, ages to begin uh, working with runes and uh, uh, figuring out uh, these languages. Really, really fun uh, sort of linguistic adventures there. So uh, these these clubs are going to be a really great time. They're starting in January, but we're just sort of announcing them now so that people can begin to uh, sort of think about that and work through their schedules and talk with us about that. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that everybody was aware of this new program that we're doing starting in January. Um and those are our announcements for today. We have lots of uh, year-end announcements uh, going on here. So Let's get back into episode one. So our B-plot, Arathel, becomes impatient with the insular nature of, of and complacency of the people of Gondolin. Now, of course, we've talked about this before. This is one of the one of the really interesting challenges of the Arathel story that we, you know, have been planning to do in season five. How to uh, characterize Arathel's story as not being one merely of boredom, right? Not just uh, uh, about her getting restless for no particular reason uh, and looking. Um, not, I'm not saying that Tolkien necessarily depicts her like this, but I'm, but I do think that in particular on screen, it might, she might look merely petulant, right? She might look like she just is bored and wants to go out. Um, and we certainly don't want that. So Marie, one thing, help, help us, help us remember, I, I want to make sure I'm remembering as well, as I'm always prone to forget these things. The plan, like when she and in season four, 
when Turgon and Aravel kind of agreed on this, right? When he sold her on the Gondolin plan, um, let's make sure that everybody remembers, including me, um, what the what the plan was, like what the what you know what it is that she's basically trying to kind of hold him to. Right. So the introduction of the Gondolin storyline in season four involved Aradel kind of going on her tour of Valerian to kind of sort through what would work and why Turgon's idea of order wouldn't be good for the people. And the conclusion she reached was basically that the Noldor on their own weren't doing so great. Mm -hmm. Like the siege is a good idea, but is it going to last? Is it going to actually accomplish anything? Are they going to defeat Morgoth this way? The siege was never really a plan to defeat Morgoth. Right, right. And just, she recognizes that. So Turgon's plan offers a bit more hope for the future mm-hmm. than Fingolfin's plan does. And that's what convinces Aradhel that it's the right thing to do, is that she's like, okay, right, this is going to create a safe place where we can live and grow and build our own army. Right. <laughs> and get ready so that when the time is right, we can attack Morgoth. Right. And Alma pretty much told Turgon that, like, you're going to get a message from me and you'll know when the time is here and That's everything. Right. So Aradel's like, right, we have to prepare for that time. So her agreeing to go along with this was always about, yes, that's the end goal and that's what we're working towards. So, so pr- primarily yeah, seeing so that, Gondolin as a means to an end in that way is, is really the sort of the the tension, right? That Gondolin mm-hmm. growing to become in the mind of Turgon and many of the other people as like as as an end in itself versus a means to that end of gathering and preparing the assault, essentially that Olmo, you know, prompted them uh, to do. Yeah, good. And of course, right. as no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so, so that's where she's now starting to fall out of step with Turgon, is that he obviously loves Gondolin for itself. Right. He, he creating a new Tyrion, and he always loved Tyrion. He still loves Gondolin. Right. And she's just not seeing him working towards the end goal. Right, the, you're right, the longer goal, right. And for those of you who, I'm, if you know, maybe you you weren't here during our discussions in season four, um, one of the things that we sort of shifted from the published Silmarillion, that, that whole, uh, the... If you only know the published Silmarillion, it might surprise you to hear us talking about Olmo sending directives to prepare an assault against uh, uh, against Angband, because that's not really in the published Silmarillion exactly. But it is part of the sort of the older story. It's uh, the back in the old versions of Gondolin, back in the Book of Lost Tales days. Um, that was the story, like that Turgon was supposed to go out when Olmo, the the message that Olmo sends, especially through Tour at the end is, okay, attack. And if you attack, you'll win, right? If you attack, I'll bring the Valar and they'll come and we'll do War of Wrath, but we'll do the War of Wrath early, like before everything gets trashed and, uh, and the good guys will win. Um, so there's this there's this big prophecy that Turgon is going to be the one who is going to bring about the downfall uh, of of Morgoth, and so that's the vision that Aradel. So we we decided we I I decided anyway. I really like that story, right? Um, you know, I, I I don't want it just to be. I mean the the version that comes out in the published Silmarillion. I mean it's still it's still interesting, right? It's still poignant. You have this, you know, I've I've given you. 
the the message essentially from Omo is I'm going to give you this place of refuge but be prepared to let it go. Don't get too attached to it, right? Because the time will come when I'll ask you, to, when, when you're going to have to run away, right? And you've got to be prepared to leave it behind. And so that dynamic of, you know, uh, Turgan saying, uh, you know, I really, I can't bear to leave it. I, I you know, I, I, I disbelieve now, I guess, in a sense. He's saying, I, I think we're fine. I don't believe that Morgoth is going to find it. M- you know, Olmo tells us it's time to run and I'm going to stay instead. Um is um, I, it's it's a nice story. It's a poignant story, but I really love the original. Um, almost the I love the more massively kind of counterintuitive version of the story. Right, the like you want me to wait, wait, attack? <laughs> right, I'm supposed to march out and attack Morgoth now. Um, that's a bolder story, a really interesting story, and especially, of course, the way that we're setting that up with the Fingolfin plot, right during uh, uh, during season five as well. We're going to be doing a lot of anticipation of that later story. So, um, or you know. <laughs> non-story as it's going to turn out to be since you know it's gone on plan is in fact not going to pan out as arathel saw along right i mean so you know arathel will be vindicated right as we uh see the rest of the gondolin story so having so that coming back then to the episode one plot um that's one of the reasons why this is this is a really important moment, right? Because what Aradel says to Turgon, she's right. She's going to turn out to be exactly right. Everything she says is going to be proven correct. We, we, we need to be remembering her words, you know, when we get to this several years down the road, right? When that finally happens. Right. And that was the important thing in putting this together was that we didn't want Aradel to simply not like the idea of Gondolin for some reason. We wanted it to be clear that she saw what Gondolin should be and what she disliked was that Turgon was not following through with what she thought was his mission. Right. So she's she's basically putting herself there and saying, look, if you're not going to do this, then I will. Right, right. And it doesn't turn out very well in her case. But right. that desire to do the right thing is what we wanted to to kind of showcase here for Aratha. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is really it makes her really from the beginning a kind of tragic figure, right? Because she sees, she foresees the failure of her brother, basically, but yet she doesn't, she can't make it right. I mean, she can't do it on her own. She she can't. Uh, if he's not going to follow through, if he and the the Gondolindrum are not going to are going to end up failing as they will, um, end up failing to do what Olmo tells them to do uh, and to follow through on the whole plan, it's not going to work. So she's not actually gonna be able. So there's there is some. Th- this is the the other thing that I think that makes her story really interesting is that on the one hand she is totally right, right? She's totally right, and the events are going to absolutely justify everything that she's saying and thinking in this episode, especially, right? But after this episode, when she, th- her own actions, her own choices are also kind of futile, um, and not just futile, but not exactly right. I mean, she's she's she's. I don't know if there's exactly a sort of a right version. Like, 
what could Arthel have done differently, you know, that would have made things turn out well? I, I'm not sure I can think exactly of what that would be. I, I think the idea is if she had stayed and tried to hold Turgon to his mission in person, right. if she had been standing there when Tour arrived right. and has had been a voice supporting for supporting Tour, message, yeah. Message, yeah. 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 Then perhaps Turgon had chosen differently. Right, but especially if she had. Still would have been no guarantee. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like she she had no guarantee that staying would fix things. Right, right, and any the desi- more than leaving would fix things. Right, and the desire to take action, the desire to, um, uh, to do something and not just go along with the well, not not with the flow, go along with the non-flow, right, with the stagnation in Gondolin is a good impulse, is a right impulse. Um, but as we're going to see, I mean, things are going to go wrong for her very quickly. And the, you know, the Aeol story, uh, you know, her story with Aeol, I mean, um, is going to be a really poignant and, and sort of tragic end, uh, really, as, you know, of like her good intentions uh, not bearing fruit, you know, in the way that she would want. So it's a, it's a sad story. Uh, she's a strong character. Um, uh, and, and so anyway, I, I think it's a really, it, it, it potentially makes for a really, really interesting uh, story arc for her. And I'm going to, I'm really excited to see the details of how we work out her story because it's, um, there's a lot, there's a lot there that could, um, uh, could make for some really powerful kind of character development on her part. And, uh, and, and as well as kind of prompting contemplation of, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, of course, she, her plot is the setup for Fingolfin, right? I mean, there's a sense in which Fingolfin's final charge at the end is almost like the culmination of the Aravel impulse here in episode one, right? We're not going to get that from Fingolfin for quite some time yet, but we, we wouldn't want the audience to forget that she's Fingolfin's daughter. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there should be a connection between those two characters and how they view the world. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's really fun. So, okay, so the details, um, uh, the details that we have, and Rhiannon's right that there is a sense, of course, in which she is going against Olmo's directive by trying to leave Gondolin prematurely. I mean, like, let's get out of Gondolin and forget the whole thing is obviously not complying with almost plan either right and it's not that that's what she's doing so she's trying to get everybody to go there is a certain extent to which she's being impatient right that you know as you say it does seem you know knowing how the story is going to pan out in retrospect the best thing she could have done was to stay stand shoulder to shoulder with tour and probably idril right against Turgon and say, dude, look, you know, this this, this is not okay, right? You know, it's time, it's time to do the thing. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen H. is asking, could Turgon have won at the point when Tuor brought that message and he attacked? Uh, Glaurung was still around, was he not? Yep, Glaurung was still around. No, this is what I love about this plot, right? What I love about this storyline is how... um, unlikely it seems, right? I mean, it's like there's there's no 
calculation that would lead you to say like I like Turgon's odds. You know, I think I think he could probably no. Like it looks crazy, and that's the thing. Like it it it, it requires the you know the the Olmo the Turgon as destined leader of the charge to destroy Morgoth plan is a plan that has like very few odds of working, right? It's 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 something where it's it's like it's a it's a leap of faith on It relies Turgon's on part. the cooperation of the Valar. Yeah. They need a they need a host from Valinor to come and be part of it for it to work. Yeah. And it's it's it all hinges on that premise, on Olmo's premise. If you attack, then I will come and I will bring the Valar with me and we will throw down Morgoth. But I'm not going to be able to deliver the Valar if you don't attack. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is really um, an act of faith um, and, and therefore a, a big deal. You know? and, I, and, and to me, the, it adds a really fun element. Um, in the end, Turgon's failure is kind of similar. Right to what it uh, to his failure uh, in the book, um, it adds some new dimensions to that decision. The decision that he makes not to go. I mean, in the end, um, but um, but I do think that it's uh, the prospects that it raises. Um, one of the things that I like most about it is that, apart from this, there's really no prospect of victory, right? I mean, ultimate victory over Morgoth, whatever camp you're in, you know, whatever, like, strategic uh, policy you favor, ultimate victory over Morgoth isn't really on the table for Beleriand, you know? Um, And I like the idea that there is this one wild, crazy, illogical-seeming hope out there that has been given to them, um, which if they follow through, it could happen, but it's going to take Estelle and it's going to take faith, uh, for them to follow it through. Um, and in the end they're going to fail, uh, to do that. But anyway, okay. So the storyline in this episode, coming back to this episode again, um, the, the, you guys have the, the kind of the lead in point the first scene is a speech that he gives that leaves her dissatisfied. Now, tell me a little bit more about about the speech. Um, what is he saying that makes her most uncomfortable? Um, the idea is that he is praising Gondolin as Gondolin, right? He's talking about how wonderful this place they have built is right. and how much they all love being here. And there's nothing wrong with what he's saying right. in the sense that Gondolin is a great place and yep. they've all worked really hard to make it so and they're all very happy to be there. Like, this is all true stuff. Yeah. But what's missing from his speech is that looking to the future. Right. And and the reason we're doing this is because we have a plan. <laughs> right. for later. So like, he's kind of burying the, the lead, right? Like, what's the point of yeah, all this stuff? That yeah. The sense of mission yes. is what's missing. So it's not that he says anything that's necessarily like a bad king or going off the deep end in certain directions. Like he's not necessarily doing anything wrong. Right. But the missing piece is very apparent to her. Yeah. Now. Troubling. Right. 
Right. Now, does he... Um, in pro- so when she approaches him, right? No, that's not going to happen until later. So the first scene is she hears the speech and she's just like, hmm, right? That's uh, does, do, do we get her like, does she have an interlocutor? Does she talk to anybody about the speech? Um, yes. Yeah, so in the in the outline, we had her speaking with Idril, Idril. at, at yeah. that point. Right. That's very so sensible. If the speech is being given publicly, a lot of the Lords of Gondolin are there. It's a, ga- a public gathering, right? Right. Um, Gondolin likely has lots of feast days. Right. right? Probably. <laughs> you know. What else are you going to do? Yeah. 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 Right. Besides, they so, haven't learned their lesson yet about the feast days. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's not all I can Of course, you got to show it here in the, in the beginning, right. too. So, so at right. this public event, Arabelle sees something missing yeah. in Turgon's vision and is troubled. And so she talks to Idril about how she's not comfortable with where things are yeah. and how she's just not sure Turgon is still on track with why they did all this. I like that. I mean, first of all, I really like, uh, make, and we established some contact between Arathel and Idril. Like we established their relationship last season. Um, but I like to read. Even in season three. Yeah. 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 In season three, even. Yeah. Um, but I, I liked the, the, Touching on that again, because, of course, Idril is going to be a really important character in the future of Gondolin, and she's going to be the one who is going to, I mean, along with Tour, of course, uh, who is going to be um, not, um, she's, the, she, she's the one who's going to be swimming upstream. Right. I mean, she's the only one who's going to be concerned and preparing for disaster and things like that, which Turgon is definitely not. So having that establishing that kind of like the two of them standing and sharing concerns, you know, uh, the, you know, beginning to see that she, not just that she gets it from our, I don't want to minimize Idril's uh, initiative in that, you know, uh, as well, but, but that, that seems to me uh, a really important thing to establish. And we're not going to get much of a chance with the two of them again after this. Right. I mean, obviously after Aradel leaves Gondolin, the two of them never see one another again. Right. Right. The the idea is that Arathel's concerns are criticism of the king, mm-hmm. who also happens to be her brother. Right. So she has a very personal, close family relationship with him, but she can't just walk up to anybody and be like, "Well, that was a terrible speech." <laughs> <You know? Right>. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's she's likely been thinking about these things for some time and hasn't quite had the chance to vocalize everything mm-hmm. that's on her mind. But Idril is someone she can speak to very candidly. Right. And she can be critical of Turgon to Idril without it being treasonous or yeah. stirring up dissent or anything like yeah, that. Like, absolutely. So it was important to pick someone that it didn't sound like Arathel was trying to wrest control of the city of Gondolin. Right. Like if she spoke to any of the lords of Gondolin about this, it would sound like she's like trying to get factions going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we and we don't Whereas, want we we don't want her to even look like she's thinking in that direction. Exactly. That yeah. wasn't the goal or what we were trying to portray. Whereas with Idril, it's more of a personal conversation mm-hmm. where it'd be like, "You don't look happy. What's on your mind?" Well, <laughs> <Right>. you, <know? laughs> yeah. you know, it's just really been bothering me. I feel like everyone's forgetting why we did all this. You know, it's just much more natural thing yes. to talk about than a. Yes. Hey, are you on my side or my brother's? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right, exactly. And then when so when she confronts Turgon then and I love the idea, the setting, you know, under the trees, right? So he's he's got his gold and silver tree there. Um uh you know, Turgon like standing amidst his, you know, faux <laughs> faux Valinor, right, that he's made, you know, his uh um that's that's I, I think a, a, a wonderful setting. Um, how are how how are you guys imagining Turgon's response? Because I mean, we've talked about needing to be careful with Turgon's character, right? We I mean, we can't like push him to you know his bad choices too soon, right? Right. Um, I think that he's a little surprised. Um, okay. He wasn't expecting her to be thinking or saying these things. Mm-hmm. Um, does he not so, perceive what does, does he perceive that there's anything wrong? I mean, does he, he just like, doesn't, does he not get it? Do you think? Right. And then the other thing is he's a little confused as to what she's even upset about. Right. You know, it's just to him, he's been putting so much effort and so much focus into building Gondolin. So to think that he's not doing what almost said, he's like, I'm doing exactly what almost said. Right. So in his mind, he doesn't see her, um, reservations right as being you know a real concern however he is eventually going to agree to let her go so he's not in full-blown paranoia no one may ever i mean no one's allowed to leave this place already so it's not like we we can't pretend that that wasn't an a starting point in Gondolin. Right. So right. no one's been outside the mountains in a hundred years right. before, this, before the curtain rises here. So yeah. it's, yeah, there's that. But, right. Right. Um, yeah. And of course, I mean, one of the things, not just to kind of glance ahead for a moment, one of the things that's really interesting about this conversation potentially is that it sets up that Aravel's, the difference in perspective here between Aravel and Turgon it's not exactly the same as it, it won't have exactly the same weight, but it's almost like a human elf di- conversation in some ways, right? You know, this like the the Turgon taking the sort of the elvish long view of things, right? And being like, yes, you know what, you know what, we're, we're here to build Gondolin, and like, is there a long term? Vi- yes, but like, we'll get there, right? There's no reason to be worrying about the future and rushing to meet the future, right? It's, it's, whereas her, um, you know, everything you're doing is great, but make sure you keep the larger, you know, the, the function of like, what, what is the business we're supposed to be doing? Um, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but it, but it kind of, it's, it, it's just reminding me of it a little bit. If you see what I'm, if you see what I mean. Yes. I mean, obviously, we're not going to have any human perspectives in Gondolin this season. Right, right. So the the theme of the season being about the different responses to change and the changefulness of Middle Earth. Gondolin is the, well, let's just not, not change. Not change. Exactly. <laughs> let's yeah. try that. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's pretend we're Valinor and just encapsulate everything. So Aradel's resistance to that right. is going to come across as being more human. Right, she, even though she's an elf. Right, right. It's it's that 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 because you're as you say, it's about the theme of change. Right, she is the one who is anticipating. She another way maybe to to articulate her reservation here is that she is resistant to the idea 
of imagining Gondolin as an oasis where change doesn't happen. It's like immune to the change of Middle-earth, right? Um, maybe that could even be an, an element in her discussion with Turgon there, where she talks about, like, you know, because, you know, we talked about this when we were discussing the theme at the beginning. In the years of the sun, the elves are beginning to perceive that, things are different, right? Things around them work differently now than they did in Valinor. It's like that, no, they're the same in some ways, but their relationship to the whole world isn't exactly the same. And so, um, you know, like that, that, you know, they can feel it in the water, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's change is different now. And so, you know, if, if maybe this is, you know, because again, he is the, the, the Gondolin perspective, uh, the slightly skewed Gondolin perspective that's going to emerge is the idea of Gondolin as this sort of uh, refuge, not just from Morgoth's armies, right, but from change itself. Like from, you know, it's, it is the thing. Gondolin comes closer to achieving what the elves with the rings of power were trying to achieve in the second and third ages than anywhere else ever. Right. I mean, it's the outside of Eleanor anyway. Um, right. It's, it's Lothlorien of the third age is not quite as insular as right. Gondolin of the first age. Right. And that's, definitely saying something <laughs> yes yes exactly exactly so it, that yeah yeah that, that, I'm, I'm just trying to think of um i want to make sure because again with with our i mean Arthel's going to know or at least she should at least suspect that there's still going to be time right i mean turgan's response to her being like but wait let's not forget about the mission would be like dude the mission oh yeah like we're going to be doing something later on, but that's not right now. You know, we've got. Like, I mean, what are we mortals over here? Right, we've got plenty of time. Like we can enjoy the springtime. We can en- we can enjoy our city. Um, what are you getting all upset about? Like, there's the way. What 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 needs to happen? What 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 what, what do you want to do? Even like, I don't get it. It would be easy for Turgon to say that. Not he does not share her impatience at all. Yeah, exactly. But again, to. What I'm looking for is, like, what exactly to ground her impatience in. Because it's not like there's anything yet being neglected. It's not like there's, there's like, a, a present call for action that's being neglected yet, right? It's just right. that she is foreseeing that if things, if they continue going in this direction, it's gonna, they're, they're going to get there, right? They're going to get to that kind right. of... Uh, it's it's yeah. the mentality. Right. Of she thought she was moving with a whole group of people who all shared a focus on Almo has told us to do a thing and we're all going to move there and do that thing together and now that they've been here for some time she's recognizing that no one's really talking about Beleriand right. everyone's only talking about Gondolin because that's what their life is right. so they're all very focused on what's going on in their encircled city and if there's no thought and concern for what's going on around them in the greater world, she's like, uh, how are we even going to notice that it's time to do something if we're really completely not paying attention and completely cut off? Right, right. And it, actually, I just I just thought of something cool. What if she were to turn it kind of back around on him and say, you guys are the ones that are changing, 
right? You know, this whole desire to, you know, this um, 100 years ago, right, when we moved here, we were not thinking of ourselves as totally separate from and independent of all of the rest of the Noldor and Beleriand, right? We were we were part of the team. We saw ourselves as part of the big picture as, you know, the uh, and we saw what's more this decision to to build Gondolin and to enter into here as part of this larger strategy for uh, uh, you know, rescuing um, our kin from Morgoth. Um, Don't you see how you guys have been changing, right? How everyone is beginning to change and to begin to turn inward? Because that turning inward is a change. Like, that's not how it was. Uh, And so even his own sort of on like emphasis on on resisting change and and not uh, uh, not wanting to think about a developing story, but just sort of this isolated moment of Gondolin is itself a change, and that that could be a thing that she could um, uh, uh, something that 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 she could kind of bring back around and even use as sort of evidence like you see how even you are being in fact affected by this momentum towards like the way that things change in middle earth and this change even this you know this change towards uh, you know a desire for unchangingness uh is itself uh like you are you are you're drifting you know, you're, you're drifting in ways that I think maybe you're not even perceiving. Um, and that if it keeps drifting in this direction, um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a real problem, uh, later on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So I like the, but again, we have, we have to make sure that we see him. He's not going to, He's not going to disagree with her per se. He's just going to he's going to think that she's exaggerating. Like he he's not going to like he doesn't think he's lost the the plot, right? He does not see the drift. Um and he might be puzzled by why she seems unwilling to or even I don't think he'd go so far as to say that she like, you know, resents the celebration of Gondolin, but why is she resistant? You know, why does uh, why is this a thing that um, uh, l- you know leads her to believe that they're now headed in the wrong direction for some reason? Like it's they, it's part of the plan, right? It was to set up Gondolin, right? And most of the people of Gondolin are on the same page as Tergan, right? Right. So her dissatisfaction is a little unusual. Like so, she shares it with Idril, and Idril, who is going to have the foresight to know her father very well and see pitfalls coming way in advance, would be like, mm, "Yes, I see the problem." Right. But most other people aren't going to see that. So right. Turgon is very likely to reach the conclusion that whatever problem is going on, the problem must be Aratha. Right. He would see Not it him. as her just being restless. Right. That mm-hmm. that you know that that she is. He would say gently and kindly, you know, that she seems to be lacking the patience actually to follow through the whole plan, right? Because the plan involved 
first establishing Gondolin and being here and building up this, and that's and that's what that's what they're doing, right? That's what they're doing. This right. is part of the plan. Right. They have built a safe city. They've brought the people into the safe city, and waiting for Almo's message, which will come in the future. So let's just enjoy our city while we're here. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no law against that, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why shouldn't we? Um, good. Okay, and then do the uh, the last scene of her informing Turgon of her desire to leave. Um, that I assume is not we're 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 gonna delay the actual her getting you know him giving his blessing on that until next episode. Uh, it's a little tricky. Um, okay. We wanted to have the full confrontation between them, so they both get their thoughts out on the table, right. and it's right. mostly the confrontation scene from the book of their dialogue with maybe some tweaks to actually incorporate some of these ideas that we've all added to the story since, right, right. <laughs> since Tolkien wrote it. But the the issue is that the second episode takes place 15 years later. Okay, right. Because um, we're going to open with Bayor as an old man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so we didn't necessarily need to resolve it to the point of here's my plans to leave and we're setting a date and it's all completely tied up and you know the next episode we'll just start with her writing out the gate we, we had to leave some of some of that to the setup of the next episode sure um i think there was maybe some disagreements as to exactly how much of that goes in this episode right <laughs> well, i understand exactly well so one thing that i'd say here is that first of all a 15-year gap is pretty i mean so it would be a little bit weird if we end episode one with her saying to Turgon, so I, I think I'd really like to go. Let me know what you think. And then episode two, he's like, well, I've been thinking about it for 15 years and here's my decision. Like that would seem weird, right? For him to just leave her hanging for 15 years. What would not seem, yeah. yeah. What would not <laughs> seem weird would be them having the discussion, him saying, you know, I don't like it, but you know, I'm not going to say no to you. I'm going to give my blessing to it. And then it to be 15 years later and she's not left yet. Like that's total. I mean, what is 15 years to the else? Again, this is part of the, this is part of the point, right? She's, she would consider that, you know, if she said in this episode, I need to leave very soon. And she's still there 15 years later. That would not be inconsistent from their perspective at all. Right. Right. So, so that that was the idea is that they would have their full confrontation in this episode and then what's okay. left for the next episode is the sorting out of what it looks like for her to leave. Right. So even if we had a kind of formal leave taking and, you know, him assigning the you know, the guards to go with her and them discussing where exactly she's gonna go and stuff like that. Yes. That can all happen later on. Um, yes, that's all in the second episode. Yeah. No, that, 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 that division makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, like, they just come to an agreement that it's, that it's, it's what she wants. He's not a fan, but he's willing to get, because that, that can happen in private, right? That doesn't have to be a big, you know, public ceremony. Um, I mean, it does have to be, it, there has to be a public ceremony, right? I mean, she can't sneak out after dark. Like, it's it's a big deal that an exception is being made to the Nobody Weaves Gondolin law. And, you know. Right. And that's, I, I think that Turgon has to find a way to express that to the people. Like, this is something that's happening as a one-time deal. Right. Right. <laughs> and this is 
you know, like it's it's a special exception for Arathel, but it's not a change in the policy of Gondolin. Yeah. Now, how is he going to... Uh, all right, so I'm a little... You can tell me if you think we should just save this discussion for the episode two discussion, um, or if it might be helpful to just to do it now. But I'm trying to think about how he does that because, I mean, honestly, it has always seemed to me like an odd moment in the Gondolin story. Um, how do well, you, as king, justify? We, we are, yeah, we are going to show him speaking to the companions who accompany her. Yep, and telling them how they're supposed to escort her to see Fingolfin and everything. Right. So Aradel to be going on an official mission to communicate with the High King would s- somehow fit in the picture of the story of Gondolin right. in a way that, hey, I want to leave now, doesn't. <laughs> right. Well, and also, you know, like... Nobody can leave Gondolin unless you're my sister, in which case it's okay. But for everybody else, forget about it. That's not good kinging, right? You know, that's, that is, that is, it's hard to make that look good. But I agree. Embassy to, you know, uh, the the High King, uh, our father, that's, you know, people would understand that the nobody leaves Gondolin thing, you know, like, communication with the High King is probably, you know, should happen every now and again, you know, once every couple centuries. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's, I think that that's a really good, um, uh, I think that's a, that's a, that's a really good way to, for him to handle it. Also, I really like how it, that, well, I mean, I guess I should just say, these are the two elements of the published Gondolin story that I always disliked most. I disliked the, that, first of all, that Turgon sounds like he's doing that, right? He sounds like he's like, well, the law is effect with everybody except for my sister, because, you know, she's my sister, so exceptions, family, you know, whatever. Like, again, bad king, it's a bad look for Turgon, I never liked that. I also dislike... You know, the other thing that I always disliked was the, now I will let you go, but I'm going to tell you who you can and can't go visit, right? And then her response being like, I'm going to visit whoever the heck I want to visit, don't you tell me, always seemed to me highly justified. That is, I'm saying, I always felt Turgon came across looking bad in both ways, both at how he makes exceptions to his own laws and how he, um, uh, and how he, um, uh, you know, tries to try, tries to boss her around after he does give her leave to go, um, but this satis- this solves both problems, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, if if by saying like go only to you know Fingolfin, you know, and not to the sons of Fanor, if if he's saying like this this is for like policy purposes, right? You know, I can make an exception for you. I can we can justify. Uh, this within the laws of Gondolin as not an inconsistency if it's an embassy to the High King. Um, um, he wouldn't be worried about it, but he would be, I mean, he's a he's a good leader. He would be thinking about what are people going to be saying if, uh, you know, it turns out that, like, the royal family can take field trips out to visit their friends on the outside, but nobody else can, right? So uh, for him to be saying in that light, right, go see our father, don't, you know, go visit your friends in the Sons of Fan or like that's not that's not uh 
that's not cool. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that that's, um, that's, that's excellent. That makes a lot of sense, but that, that's, that would come up in episode two, right? The, the yes, sort of the, the early the formal of declaration and leave taking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Arthur will of course ignore all of that. <laughs> right. exactly. Which of but. course is a really wonderful way to set up like how things like, although like she's, she's right and she's foresighted and she's insightful, but then she kind of starts messing things up right away and things start going sideways um, as soon as she leaves. Uh, and we have a fair indicator there that things are headed in that direction. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. I like that a lot. Um, so, so that fourth scene there is a, is, is a, is a private conversation then between Arthel and Turgan where she says, I want to go and I'm going to explain why. And he says, I don't like it, but I'm not going to hold you back. Right. And he might even say something like, take some time to think and make sure. Are you not just impatient? You know, are you not just being impatient? Are you not just, you know, is this, you know, perhaps this is some transitory restlessness that will pass. Uh, And we can even have him essentially speaking as if he's trying to re-recruit her, like she's the one who's departing from the plan. Right. By leaving. Um, uh, And I think that's similar to something I think. uh, um, Yeah. Rihanna, it's similar to something you were saying earlier on. Um, So there's a really fun potential for that last conversation to be basically both of them thinking that they're the ones who are right and the other is the one who is wrong. And they're both like agreeing about the same thing. Like they both have the plan and they think they are the ones who has, who has the plan and that the other one is wrong. Yes. We want it to be a a tragic misunderstanding of each other instead of a one person is clearly correct. And one person is clearly wrong. Um, So they, they both have insights into the other person's shortcomings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and and that's um and that's that's and they're they're both they're both right, right? They're both right. Yeah. I mean, she's correct. He is in fact drifting in that direction and she foresees exactly what he's going to do. But he's not wrong <laughs> that it's not a good idea to leave and that things are likely to go sideways if she pursues this plan. Um yeah, and Nick says that he he likes the idea that the story we get about her impatience and restlessness is all from Turgan. It's like Turgan propaganda, <laughs> right right Nick? Like that's that's the uh that's the Turgan version of the story that uh you know right. is going to end up that that's the one that Pengalada is going to write down, right? <laughs> when he tells yeah, from, the story. From Turgan's point of view. Yeah. Everything was fine. Yep. And she just left. And she just left. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. From Arabelle's point of view, things were drifting and drifting and drifting, and she couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> right. And she left. Like, right. there's a difference. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, I know. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, Stephen H. says, so would uh, Turgan feel vindicated after Ale shows up and kills Aradel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could even give Turgan a speech, you know, like over Aradel's body of something like, you know, I, my heart foreboded that some disaster would befall if you left Gondolin. You know, like, yeah, I mean, because it did. Look. He's right again. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Leaving Gondolin w- was a bad idea in the end. Um, but um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not saying that we want to make him be smug, right, about her death, obviously. But, but again, like, does he does he feel that you know his um, his side of the debate has clearly been proven correct? Yeah, I think he does. And that, of course, ironically, tragically, is going to help the drift that she was trying to correct ultimately. Right. Her actions don't prevent anything that she was trying to prevent. If anything, it makes things slide down how much faster. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lots of opportunities to talk about Aerodel this season. <laughs> Lots of opportunities to talk about Aerodel this season. No, this is this is great. I, I'm loving this story as we're as we're setting it up here. Um, question: I skipped a scene because I want to come back to it at the end because uh, I it's it's, I, it's the one I'm not sure I understand. The one about speaking to Pengaloth. First of all, I mean, like just getting Pengaloth on screen seems important, right? I mean, he's uh, one of the like really unsung heroes of, you know, of Beleriand. Um, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Pengaloth, Pengaloth was the great scribe, the great scholar of Gondolin, uh, and the one who is credited with being, uh, well, in the later versions anyway, of the Legendarium, he's the one who is credited with being like the elf who transmitted the stories to... So Alfwina is the human who goes, who travels to uh, to Tolaresia and gets the stories of the Silmarillion and brings them back to Europe. Um uh, he's the tra- he's the transmitter. He's where the Silmarillion stories came from and how they got into the human tradition. Uh, and Pengaloth was his connection. Like it was Pengaloth that he met, and Pengaloth who told him all the stories. Uh, so Pengaloth of Gondolin becomes the writer scholar who is essentially like the frame narrator of like the 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 essentially the narrator of the, of the Silmarillion. So he's a really, really important character. Um, uh, in a, now, like, whether or not we stick with that, you know, we, we can decide. But uh, And again, Tolkien, because Tolkien had lots of different ideas about this, and, and uh, that was only one of them. It was a later one, but it was it was only one of them. But anyway, so I, I love the idea of just, let's get Pengaloth on screen. I'm, I'm all for that, even for, for no other reason. Um, but what do we see happening? What, what's, what's happening with Arthel in that discussion with Pengaloth in the library? Okay, so the idea was that we wanted to show Gondolin being insular Mm -hmm. and focused only on Gondolin. And Pengalad was very young um, with the move to Gondolin. He was a child, um, or born there, I forget which one we had, but either way, he's shown as a child in the early Gondolin scenes. Um, Right. So at this You mean like the ones with scaffolding and stuff at the end of season four? Yeah, 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 exactly. In some of those montages, we had child. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But... He's grown up now, and but he only knows Gondolin. He doesn't actually know Valeriand. So right. he and Aradel are talking, and he's kind of waxing poetic about how Gondolin is the strongest fortress in Middle-earth. And Aradel's like, but it's not. Right. <laughs> um <laughs> Hangband is a little bit north of here. Yeah, yeah. Gorgium is a little bigger than Art Mountains. Like, Aradel recognizes that his view is so narrow because it's all he knows. Right. And it's not that he's downplaying other things. He just doesn't know them. He's never seen them. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So he has no concept of the difference between Gondolin and Hangband. Um, 
So first of all, I love the I love this idea of having Pengo uh, establishing Pengoov as in this way, sort of the voice of the purely Gondolindrum perspective, right? Um, uh, the the he's the poster child of Gondolindrum isolationism, right? Because like he literally doesn't know anything outside; he's never even seen in his memory anything outside the valley, right? So um, that's um, wonderful. I, I, I think that's that's really great. So having her, so so in this way. And I'm thinking on a kind of symbolic level, which is whatever, I guess. I'm supposed to do that. I'm an English professor. But anyway, he's uh, – so when she's interacting with Pengaloth here, it's almost like she's like directly interacting with this – his – although, again, it's not, it's not that – because he's bad or anything like that. But his is the perspective that she's kind of struggling against, right? This whole – uh, Gondolin is the whole world, right? There is nothing else but Gondolin and nothing else matters but Gondolin because to him it's literally true. Like he's never seen anything else in the world and that is going to be the natural consequence of this kind of isolation. Exactly. Um, Penglod's not a bad guy and he's not misled or... Right. Deceived. Wrong about yeah, things. Yeah. You're deceived yeah. or he's not going to cause problems I mean, he's Pengalot. Right. <laughs> he's not going to do anything bad. No. Or, you know, whatever. So all he's doing is having his own worldview. Yeah. And expressing it. Yeah. And she's countering it. Again, not in a way that is going to contradict Turgut. Right. Like, that was the sure. important part of this. Is we had to have something they could talk about that focuses on the issue and brings up her clash with this all the world is gondolin the yeah, viewpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without having her being inciting treason or anything like right, that. Right, right, exactly, yeah, yeah. And another reason why my brother is completely out to lunch, right? Yeah, no, we can't have her having those kinds of... She can't be like that guy at the water cooler, right? Who's like, yeah, that's absolutely not what Arthel should be doing. No, it's great. I like that. No, that's um, that's a wonderful... Th- and Pengaloth is such a perfect choice for this... Um, for that particular voice, right? To be the, because everybody else who's going to be really important in Gondolin are going to be people who've been with them for a while. Like, you know, the Gorfindel and Ecthelion. And so they've been there, right? They've been with Turgon on the outside and everything. They have a similar kind of perspective, uh, to Turgon and Arathel themselves. Right. But to have, um, Pengalov as the voice of like complete sheltered-ness within Gondolin, um, is, Great, because that 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 really needs that really needs a voice, and he is uh, he's the perfect choice for that. I think that's great, and of course, this also perfectly sets up. It's not the same situation, um, but Aradel's discomfort with this and Pengala, the kind of the blitheness of Peng- like seeing in Pengalov the consequences of this sheltering move. Right. Again, even though, as you say, he's not bad, it's not like we're seeing, you know, the gondolindrum going bad here and everything's, you know, it's no, but we can, but there are some negative consequences to it. Right. You know, it's, it's uh, when you cut, when you shut yourself away from the whole world, there are consequences to that. And we see those consequences in Pengalov. Of course, we're going to be dealing with a very similar thing in Nargothrond, right. With the people of Beor. Um, and I wish I could take credit for having anticipated that parallel. I didn't, but I think it's awesome, right, to see the, you know, showing these kind of 
these things happening in this way in within Gondolin, and then the conversation that um, that Andreth is going to be having with uh, Finrod is going to have some very distinct parallels to the conversation between Arathel and Turgon. It's going to be very different because we're talking. It's there is where we're going to get. Um, it's it's going to be able to spotlight the differences between the fact that it's humans. Right. Um, that's what's going to really be obviously kind of exacerbating the situation in Nargothrond. But um, but I really, really like that um, uh, that parallelism there. Um, so. Yeah, well, good. I, I think that's great. I think I think that works. That works wonderfully. OK, good. So And that it seems to me. Um, I mean, I know I haven't heard every. I'm, I'm sure I haven't seen heard every side of the debate about uh, how to divide up the plot between episode one and two uh, with the Aradel stuff. But I will say this seems to me to make a lot of sense. The um, having the episode arc be from her like perceiving the issue and being a little bit uneasy about it through the the discussion with Turgon about leaving um, uh, and then have the actual preparation to depart the announcement of the departure and the departure itself happening uh, in episode two. So, um, and even, as I say, to me, even the time gap works, works really well there. Um, and uh, even, you know, Nick was pointing out, of course, that yes, although it does make perfect sense that to elves, the 15 year gap would seem like no real delay. Um, uh, he's pointing out that, of course, we don't, um, our audience are not elves. Uh, that is true. Um, but <laughs> this is just one of the things that we need to manage, right? This is one of the things that we can, sh- in fact, if we were super cunning, the juxtaposition of the human elf interaction plots in episodes one and two with the Aradel, the pure elf plot, right? Uh, you know, with, with the, w- w- what we have working there in the A and B plot would help us to kind of establish that difference, right? Um, if last season, if we tried to pull this exact kind of thing, right, it might seem weird, but we wouldn't have any context, to give for it. Now right. we have our, 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 our viewers would have some reason to think, well, but they're elves, right? So, okay. I guess it's not weird for them. I mean, even emphasizing it in a way. Um, uh, I mean, because in episode two, we, we have the opportunity to juxtapose, right? A scene with Beor, right? Where they're talking about like how much time has passed, right? Wow. It's been 15 years. And then we shift to an Ardell scene, which is like, so very little time has passed. It's only been 15 years, right? You know, in which we just really emphasize how different this looks, you know, from those di- the different sides of the fence there. Um, yes, yes. I mean, without actually having a newspaper that says it's been 15 years, <laughs> right? Showing up on the screen at any point, right? Yeah. Exactly. Slightly exactly. more subtly, but yes. Yeah, the, yeah. The, no, the, exactly. The, I, I, but yeah, we wouldn't say the number, but but yeah. I mean, just to to to, to emphasize that the same right. gap of time. Uh, Adonel goes from being a four-year-old child to being a nineteen-year-old girl, yeah. and uh, Baylor goes from being about sixty-seven years old to being. 15 years older than that um, so in the early 80s <laughs> right yeah early 80s yeah <laughs> yeah so it, they're going to be noticeably older people um, right in the case right. of Adonel a different actress in fact would be necessary <laughs> probably so <laughs> probably so uh yeah yeah no uh, that's right and um 
yeah, so that's that I think is really um, a really fun opportunity to begin to kind of help orienting uh, our audience to these to these things. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. No, that's great. That's great. Okay. I'm happy with that. I think that that's there's some excellent stuff there. So let's talk about the frame story briefly, and then we'll get back to the um, we'll get back to the um, human elf issues uh, here in a moment. Um, I almost wish I could have used that as a segue, <clears throat> but that's okay. I want to talk about Harid too. Uh, so introducing Harid. So we've got. Uh, am I right, by the way, in assuming that your bullet points here are essentially like three different scenes that are going to be like that? They're going to be three Correct. total scenes. Correct. Okay. One at the beginning, so one the, at the, the end, one in the middle. The the opening teaser is going to be the first scene, and then the yeah. first scene of the episode will also be in the frame, so that'll okay. be the second scene there. Okay. And then yes, and, and at then the, the end, end. The, the final scene before the tag is going to be right. uh, that that final scene there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. So we've got Gandalf traveling to Pilargir, where he takes a boat south to Harad. Okay. His conversation with the boat's captain informs the audience of some of the history between Gondor and Harad. Yeah. So we get a little bit of, uh, we don't need like the full, you know, Appendix A exposition, right? Of the, like, let me tell you the story of Castamir. And, you know, like, we don't have to go all there, but, um, but certainly to be establishing and, you know, establishing Gondorian perspectives towards the Haradrim and also, of course, setting up what are likely to be some of the Haradrim uh, sentiments towards Gondor in the north. Um, uh, because, of course, those things are obviously going to be played upon very heavily, uh, one would presume, by the Cult of Sauron in their recruitment speeches. Um, so, so yeah. So what, what are some of the elements that you would want to... Uh, is the name of Castamir going to come up? Um, I don't think so. Um, the idea was just to first establish where in the world we are. Right. That, um, you know, traveling south from Gondor, essentially, and that the people of Gondor don't have a very trusting relationship with the people of Harad. Okay. They're not actively at war. Like, there's right. nothing terribly bad going on right now, but there is bad blood in the past. And so there'd be just that level of distrust of... Um, Oh, you're going there, you know, right. <laughs> kind it's, of thing. Do they travel there? Do are we imagining that there's like there's trade, or is he? Yes. Does he have to convince this guy to go out his way to be like, you want me to go where? Like, is... no, no, no. This this would be an established trade route okay. kind of thing. So it's that's the thing. It's because it's a peaceful time period. It's not like no one would be traveling between the two places, right? And there'd be an exchange of goods. Like that's probably not unreasonable, but that level of distrust. Right. And probably there aren't a whole lot of Gondorians who, like, go there for vacation. Right. I mean, that's right. Right. Yeah. Just that, you you know, you're, you're a little careful and you pay attention to things. And, right. Um, and that they're different cultures. So how they interact is based on that. You know, they're obviously they wear different clothing and everything. So it's there, right. there's differences between the cultures and. Uh, a little bit of hesitance, but nothing so severe as we are actively at war with them or right. no one ever goes there. It's not right. like that at this point. This is 70 years, of course, before Return of the or Lord of the Rings. Um, right, right. So, yeah, they're, the, the cult of Sarn hasn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the whole point is it's to... we, we don't have Harid preparing for a war against Gondor. We're nowhere near that yet. Right. Right. And right. The, the steward of Gondor is 
an elderly man who's 96, he's going to die in two years. He's also not preparing for war against Tara. Right. Right. So it, it's more of a benign, let's just keep our distance from each other and everything will be okay situation yep. at the present. Right. Right. Um, okay. Uh, what does, do we have Gandalf saying anything about what he's doing? Why he's visiting? Um, I mean, being Gandalf, he doesn't exactly express himself clearly and directly. So right. I'm, sure, of course he does. Right. But yeah, of course he does. Right. Um, he, so the guy says, where are you going? He says, I can put it no plainer than to say, uh, yeah. So he, and, and then be really vague about it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty right. much. Right. Um, he, he would express his concerns about Mordor in a very, very roundabout way. Right. Um, Cause this is not like an official emissary to the boat captain. Right. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not like you, by the way, should personally prepare your family for what is coming. Right. But at the same time, he's not going to say nothing, right. you know? So he's like, you know, things are afoot and, you know, I gotta be about my business and everything because mark my words, we are going to have a problem over there. <laughs> right. And he, and he would mention that he's, that he knows people, or that he's been there before, that he has friends there? Right. We want to establish that he's going to a place he knows. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So just, just some setup to kind of get the audience to know what Harad is and what Gandalf's doing down there on some level. But Do, more questions than answers at this point. Does the boat captain know he's a wizard? Or does he just think he's a oh. weird old guy? Oh, I don't know. If we, does he know he's with Rondir? Does he call him Mithrandir? I'm trying to remember. We didn't necessarily discuss all of that in this yeah. discussion. No, I'm just so. wondering. I, I mean, our outline didn't get much more detailed than this. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> and it's possible but, to avoid. I mean, we don't have to go there. I'm just wondering if we. I mean, because you know, Gandalf is well known in Mithrandir. Like he, they yelled him in the streets as he's riding through Minas Tirith, right? So, right, like, in he's Gondor, well, he would be Mithrandir. Yeah, right. he would be well um, known as Mithrandir, but. That doesn't mean that like random sea captain, you know, uh, uh, in the, on the docks is going to recognize him on sight necessarily, or that he would announce himself. Um, we could right. go there or not, you know. I, I don't. Yeah, the thing is, we had Gandalf appear in the season four frame, of course, with the trip to the Lonely Mountain. Right. So the audience knows him as Gandalf. Um, having a character address him on screen as Mithrandir. It's probably just going to confuse issues because right. we're about to change his name to Ankanus <laughs> again. In about two yeah, exactly. So I would. I shall give you a transitional name <laughs> for five minutes. Yeah. We will call you Mithrandir. <laughs> yeah, I, I would prefer to avoid that. So yeah. I'm fine with the boat captain not having heard the name Mithrandir and Gandalf not introducing himself as such. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, but it it's not. Terribly important. We're not going to see this boat captain again, most likely. Yeah, no, so I, I'm not. I'm not. Just, I'm not. Yeah, thinking he's just that we're. A, yeah, a background guy who can be like, "Why would you go to Harad? I go right. there because I'm selling this stuff. But why are you going there? <laughs> right. Yeah, kind right. of." Yeah, no, I, I, the idea of establishing the basic, uh, you know, as Nick was saying, the basic, uh, you know, geographic and political situation there is certainly uh, is certainly a good thing. I'm just thinking as far as. Because it's it it seems to me significant to kind of set up how we like is if Gandalf is going incognito that is as a non wizard like I'm just a random old guy you know 
wandering about. Like I'm just a I'm just an elderly tourist, right? That's me, Mister Elderly Tourist, whom you've never seen before. Um, I would think that if his plan is to get off the boat and just wander about as a tourist, um, he would certainly not announce himself to the ship captain, right? Um, but if he is going to be known as a wizard, it, it you know he might not hide it. I don't, but again, it's not again as you say, it's not that the, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of the ship captain or his relationship with Gandalf. Um, I'm just kind of thinking about Gandalf's whole approach. Does he? Um, Nick is mentioning he uh, 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 he doesn't think the sea captain would recognize Gandalf because of his new Haradrim costume. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, he's not going to be incognito in Harad, right? I mean, he's going to be openly high in Connus the Wizard back again, right? Right. The same the same way he's Gandalf when he goes to visit the hobbits in the Shire and they right. know who he is. Like, right. So yeah, Gandalf's not going on a stealth mission here of any right. sort. He's right. not trying to hide who he is. Um, the question is just how much does the captain know or care about who Gandalf is other than that he's a passenger on his boat and he wants to know if he can trust the guy right. like beyond that level of, I just need to know your business so that it doesn't affect business <laughs> um, or my livelihood. Then, um, right. right. Then it, that's pretty much the boat captain's interaction with Gandalf. So I didn't, I didn't really think through all this, but um, it's Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, but he might not want to announce to the Gondorians, um, you know, headed to circulate among the Harad. Just to get, why raise even questions? So, okay. So he, in, in which case, he could be going by Incanus already, which is not a name that he's known as in Gondor very yeah. easily. So, that would actually be really interesting. I mean, if he comes up to the boat and the audience recognizes him, right? The audience knows immediately that this is Gandalf. Um, they could recognize him by his staff. You know, they could recognize him by his hat. They could recognize him by his eyebrows, you know, however they recognize him. They could recognize him because he was in multiple episodes of season four. <laughs> oh, season four, like, right? I mean, including the last episode that just happened. Yeah. So they recognize him as Gandalf. Um, uh, but he introduces himself as in Kanus. To the to the sea captain, I kind of like that actually. Um, uh, declare, so that he's 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 kind of low profile from the Gondorian end of things uh, at the end. Kind of like that. Anyway, okay. Yeah, if, if that's important to establish that he's not getting permission from the steward of Minas Tirith to take this trip. Like he's just getting on a boat and going down there. Then mm-hmm. yeah, it would make sense not to be like. Mithrandir was here. <laughs> That's right. Mithrandir is here, and I am headed to your political enemies to do something you don't know about. Like, that's why create that kind of fuss, right? I mean, he's, he's not answerable to Gondor. I mean, he doesn't uh, right. he, he doesn't but, need again. this steward's permission. But, yeah, he doesn't want to – he wouldn't want to cause difficulties there. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. Um, so – but hang on. So, the image that Nick got in my head is is kind of sticking with me here. Does he um does he change clothes? And if he changes clothes, when does he change clothes? Does he go native? Oh, and wait, what does native look like? What is 
the Haradrim town. What are we picturing here? Culturally. Right. So obviously this is uh, pretty open-ended as mm-hmm. far as what we want to choose for the culture. Um, the idea is that near Harad might be like Saharan Africa kind of place. Right. right. You know, Mediterranean yeah. area. Yeah. Vaguely as far as climate goes and therefore we could draw aspects of that from cult- for culture if we wanted to but we're in a fantasy world with a fantasy culture that yes. wasn't described in the source material right. in any great detail right so it's kind of whatever we want it to be i um, agree north saharan like a, the a southern coast of the mediterranean is exactly the kind of thing that i was thinking of as far as like geography and climate that's exactly mm-hmm. what i was thinking too um i think My own impulse would be, as far as, like, general feel and of costuming and architecture and things like that, would be, yeah, like, Northern African, but not Muslim, basically. You know, with without, like, the distinctly uh, uh, kind of Muslim cultural influences uh you know so that, the, the geometric artwork in the in the architecture yeah. would be an element that you would not want to include well yes i i okay. i definitely want i would I, I would think it would be important for us to avoid anything that begins to kind of overlay gondor and harad with like <sighs> christian versus muslim like we don't want to go there um uh, yeah, we probably need to have a whole conversation about the culture of Harad, yeah. and in a whole podcast, I would that think to would ship, be a do great idea. It. That would be an excellent idea. Let's do that. One of our yeah. one of our other uh, between episodes discussions can definitely be about that. Um, but um, okay, great. So let's let's save that. Um, yeah, but key point: avoid Christian versus. Muslim. Muslim. That's that's the main thing that I think we would. Yeah, uh, the very last thing we would want to suggest is like, you know, and these guys are bad guys, and you can tell because they're Muslim, right? I mean, like that's like we don't want anything that looks vaguely like. I mean, but you know what I mean? Like it's it could easily easily look like that. Um, Yes, that was why I was trying to say this is a fantasy world. (laughs) Exactly. 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 Okay, cool. So, yeah, I agree. We'll, we'll talk more about that later and think think more about the visual design and stuff, uh, as Rihanna is suggesting there, too. Um, okay, good. Um, so, when he arrives, we have him welcomed, and this is the, this is the Bilbo-esque conversation, right? Um, you yeah. know, the, like, Inconus, I had no idea you were still in business. Uh uh, kind of conversation. Okay, so when was the last time he was here? How long ago was it that we're, we're saying? Um, within the lifetimes of people who live there now. So um, it's not it's not so long ago that everyone he knew has died, mm-hmm. but the younger generations never met him. So right. it's been at least 30, 40 years right. since he's been there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that seems that seems fair. Of course, if we can't, like with the Hobbits are longer lived, right? So he can he can he can be away for longer and still be well remembered uh, by everybody um, there. But yeah, something like thirty years. Right? Well, yeah, because this guy's 
unlike Bilbo, Bilbo retains a childhood memory of Gandalf's last visit, right? This one does not. This, this one does not. This person who's meeting him is like, oh, it's you. I've heard about you. Right. Right. So he is he yeah. is to hit to the younger son, a legendary figure. Now, how young is the son, the younger son? Um, both of the children we were thinking would be late teens, early 20s. Okay. okay. So, you know, 21 and 18 or something along those lines as a guess. Um, mm-hmm. But just old enough that we don't need them to grow up over the course of this episode or this season because they're going to, it's only going to be a year. Right. So they have to be adults in their culture. Yeah. When Gandalf arrives. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Um, yeah, no, okay. That's good. That's good. So he's like late teens, 20 ish, something like that. And then he's got an older yes. brother who's yes. a little bit older. Just a, just a few years older. Yes. Just a few years mm-hmm. older. Okay. So they're, 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 they're very close in age. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, uh, okay. And so, and we have, uh, we have a happy bustling, uh, seaport market scene, right. As we're going through and, uh, um, but we see the street preacher, right? Yes. So I know your request had been for the, the entrance into Harad to be like the entrance into the Shire. This is an amazing place and everyone loves Gandalf when he gets there. And we wanted to kind of keep that, but have at least one note be off. Right. So all that is there, but there's at least one hint that all is not well in the Shire of the South. (laughs) Right. And is that, does the street preacher notice him? Like, do we have antagonists? We don't interact. We just see him off the side. He's just there so that, the audience can see and hear something of what's that, being said. That, that there's an issue. Okay, right, mm-hmm. right. Okay, great. I like that. I like the mostly happy Hobbiton in the South, but um, uh, but the the one sour note. That's good. Um, because of course we do need to like suggest the conflict that's going to arise, and we don't have, we don't have much screen time to develop the story. So that kind of efficiency seems to me a very good idea. Um, that's great. Okay. So, and then the, their mother is the ruler of the city state. Yes. Yes. So, um, Philip Menzies, uh, was able to uh, participate in the script discussion at least a little bit. And he said that he really wanted to see a female character and he was asking us if both of the children had to be sons. Right. Right. Because we were saying, oh, the brothers do this, the brothers do that. He's like, well, why not have one of them be a sister? Right. And, we're like, well, I don't know. Is there a reason? And we didn't really go anywhere with it. But then afterwards, someone suggested, well, does the leader have to be their father? Couldn't it be their mother? And then that got adopted into it. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, what What if, because if we were going to have the priestess of the, uh, of the cult of Sauron be a female character in Harad, we didn't want it to be. And the only female character whose name you know who lives in Harad is evil. Is evil. <laughs> yes. And then maybe there's a sister who goes evil and joins her. It's like, well, right. that doesn't, that doesn't say anything good. That was not the story right. we were trying to tell. <laughs> there's inclusiveness and then there's inclusiveness. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah. Right. It was like, yeah. wait a minute. So we realized that the leader had concerns for the independence of the city state that they'd been ruling and concerns for their children coming of age at this time and being, not quite ready to become rulers 
And we realized those concerns would be the same, whether it's a mother or a father. Right. right. Um, so that character, it seems like, was kind of interchangeable. So we, we went with that. Sure. <laughs> if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. No, no problems. Okay. No problems. Um, yeah. It, Rhiannon says that, you know, the two sons also present a kind of parallel to Boromir and Faramir, which is, I agree, that's that's kind of fun. That's where we came up with all this from, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, cool. Uh, so that so the 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 last discussion there with his the meeting the queen um, will sort of establish uh, his kind of wizardly credentials, right? Like, yep, I was an old man forty years ago. I'm still an old man today. Uh, you know, I'm st- uh, so I mean, it's it's going to be clear to them that uh, to everybody that. So was he known as a wizard? Like, did he do wizardly things? Fireworks, probably, but, I mean... Yes, I mean, the same way he did wizard stuff in the Shire, right? Okay. So, like, fireworks and magic... Magic cufflinks and, like and things like that, right. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. magic yeah. and cufflinks, you know, that level of thing. So, yeah. yes, but maybe not in a way that stands out as beyond the pale of what humans can do. Right. Yep. Yeah, I know that's good. Oh, and um, uh, I think... Uh, Rhiannon had suggested um, to give everybody Adunayak names. Yes. I yes, love I that idea. Notes, I yeah, I yes. love that idea. I think that's a great idea. Um, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be that unusual for them to have Adunayak names. I mean, we know that Numenorians uh, did, you know, settle down in this area. Um and I mean, for crying out loud, the hobbits of the Shire are still speaking a, essentially a dialect of Adonaiac. So, uh, you know, it's it's pretty. I mean, the the existence of Westron and the connection between Westron and Adonaiac makes it pretty clear that the Numenorean language, you know, uh, spread really effectively, you know, across the continent. So that we would see them speaking um, a different version of it. But still, you know, even even the idea that it's kind of a purer version of Adonaiac than, you know, the Westron of the North is kind of cool. Uh, so um, anyway, yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the inspiration behind that is that why a particular city state that Gandalf has a relationship with and that history of the Numenorians having interactions there yeah. may have prompted that initial uh, relationship for him. Right. I don't know if we'll have a chance to bring that out later, but right. the idea is that that's, that's the basis of what's going on here. Is yes. They are unique and different in some way because of their different heritage. Numenorean their blood. Yeah. And he was, so that Gandalf's initial visit was inspired by his curiosity to see what the blood of Numenor is, you know, doing. Like, yeah. 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 In Harid, like there are Numenorean, uh, you know, is there, um, uh, and, and in as much as he is looking to see, is it possible to at least establish resistance to Sauron in Harad? At best, establish allies for the West in Harad? Finding places who are descendants of Numenorians, whether or not those are black Numenorians or not, it's still like that's a, a very logical place for him to begin. Um, right. 
So I like that. I like that a lot. I agree. Nick was just saying, I like that we're going to get a lot of flack that their names sound vaguely Arabic, vaguely Arabic. And then we can say, no, that's not what's happening here. And you're dumb. <laughs> yeah, I agree. We'd be so justified. We'd be so justified and, and, and could tell them with great smugness that this is one of Tolkien's invented languages of the, this is the invented language of Numenor. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I agree. That'll be sweet. Okay, good. And she introduces the older son. Excellent. Okay. Right. So we wanted to introduce our three main characters in Harad, get yeah. a taste for the place, and have that feeling of Gandalf being welcomed. Right. In this first episode, that's really all we were trying to establish. Obviously, we have to move the story along very incrementally with the frame. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, because this is all this is all getting what five minutes. Um, two of the scenes should be about four minutes long and then the other one maybe two minutes yeah it's it's about this one we're giving almost 10 minutes to okay which is a lot for the frame yeah uh but we figured establishing shots and characters who are just background characters we wanted to kind of have that that full scope yeah you're not going to be able to have like tight hard-hitting scenes at the very beginning when you're trying to establish a brand new geographic context and everything else. So, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's good. Okay. All right. Awesome. I like it. Let's talk about some of the, some of the bigger issues. And we've touched on some of these things already, but, um, okay. So the Longival elves uh, versus mortal men. So this is just thinking about the, 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 the ways in which their lifespans affect how they think and how they act. Uh, so men are born, live, and die of old age and about the time it takes an elf to pass from childhood to maturity. Yes, this is going to be something that's going to be deeply jarring. I'm thinking we'll have lots of opportunities um, to deal with the strangeness of this in Nargothrond, especially, right? Where they're like being born and growing up side by side. I mean, we, we can, you know, I'm not saying that like we do this on screen, but we basically can have two babies, right? Two infants in arms, you know, at the beginning, uh, like they come in and there's like one mom who's carrying the baby and there's an elf mom carrying her baby when they arrive. Right. And then in like a couple more episodes, the human baby is gray haired and the, you know, the elf baby is like just starting, you know, her, her adult life. Um, so we we will have opportunities to show the real the real differences there, and I think Nargothron certainly a, 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 a occurs to me as the the best way to 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 to, sh- to the the place to bring this up. Um, but of course, the consequence of this, right? The consequence of this is going to be in the attitude that the elves have to the men, right? They are going to, there's going to be a natural inclination towards what is going to seem like condescension, right? Um, Not because they think themselves vastly superior to humans. Some of them might, but not, but, but it's not about that, right? Like they're, they would speak to them like children and the, and the humans would feel like they're speaking to them like children, for the very good reason that they're the same age as children, in fact, right? Um, and that's going to be something that's going to take a while. I mean, for the elves to wrap their heads around, like, how can we even consider, how can I consider this person a peer, right? When, you know, I mean, I remember how I was, you know, at the age of 60 and how ignorant I was at the age of 60. And this person's only 45, you know, uh, you know, 
Like this person can't even vote yet. Uh, you know, it's like they're, they're they, 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 you know, so yeah, I mean, an elf, a middle-aged person would still need, you know, a fake ID, you know, in, 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 in elf culture. And it's, that's going to be weird. Like that's going to be really, really difficult to adjust to. So I think this tendency towards almost this a, a kind of patronizing attitude. Right, treating them like children, uh, because yeah. they are like they're they're all like children who never get a chance to grow up, even, right? Um, so, um, yeah, the, and that's that's going to be it's going to obviously it's going to be a big sticking point for some of the humans, right? Who are going to be really unhappy being treated like that. But that is going to be a thing. It's going to be hard for elves because again the the one of the one of the gaps here that I think is so important, right? Um, with goodness knows, we all know uh, human adults, right? Who talk really patronizingly to like teenagers, right? Um, and one of the things that, and of course, we all, and I'm sure, remember as teenagers being treated that way by adults, right? Um, and one of the ways to kind of try to counteract that is to say to adults, you know, try to imagine how, you know, you used to look at the world when you were 16 years old, right? And try to treat them like you would have wanted to be treated when you were 16. Well, the elves are doing that, right? I mean, they'd be like, I am remembering how I was when I was, you know, 25 years old. And when I was 25 years old, I could barely, like, you know, be trusted and, you know, pick my own clothes. So, like, seriously, what, um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, of course, people would say 25-year-old humans uh, also can be trusted to choose their own clothes. But anyway, um, the, <laughs> sorry, sorry, father of a teenager. I apologize. Um, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds like your um, comments about speaking to teenagers is maybe a little too close to home. It's you know I'm having it's you know I'm I I have a 17 year old in the house you know and uh, you know we're having some of those issues that you have with 17 year olds who uh, even when you are not being condescending kind of are very very sensitive to that tone you know it's it happens um but um but anyway i'm just saying this is going to be like the elves are not going to be uh, but again the problem is when when a, when a, when a human adult treats a young person like that they're they're being unjust in some ways right they really are the elves are not being <laughs> unjust <laughs> like it's 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 it it's not going to make sense to them at all. I mean, it would be, it would feel to them exactly as if, um, it, it, it would feel exactly as if somebody came up to us and said, you cannot treat your five-year-olds like that, right? You need to let your five-year-olds be like, give them autonomy to make their own choices and you respect their own decisions. And we'd be like, dude, they're five. They can't like, it's not in their best interest. I mean, it's, that's what it's going to feel like to the elves to, to uh, come to understand that they're supposed to treat the humans as, um, as equals. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a 
it's a huge issue. So Nargothrond, again, obviously this is going to come up in Nargothrond. Um, ways in which I think yeah. it could come up with... Um, uh, I could imagine it coming up with uh, with Beleg, even, right? I mean, wouldn't Beleg... Well, he probably wouldn't, because he wouldn't know it. So I'm, like, I'm imagining Beleg meeting meeting Haleth, right, and the Haladin on the on the on the on the perimeter. But he probably wouldn't even parse the fact that she's. I mean, she's not going to say her age, right? So when he's when he's talking with her, he wouldn't have that context. So he probably wouldn't even. I mean, he would be shocked, right? I mean, if you interviewed Beleg afterwards and be like. Guess how old she was, right? He wouldn't guess, right? He'd be like, she must have been at least 250 minimum, right? Um, but um, uh, so, so I, I don't think it would come up in that context. But with um, with Fingen and Hador, I can imagine it because Hador is legitimately young, right? I mean, he's going to be a teenage boy when he goes uh, with them. And so, what is ha- like when he enters into Fingen's service? I can see a real disconnect between what the two of them think is happening, right? That is, I can see Hador going in and being like, I'm being taken on as a squire, right? Like, I'm being, I'm being prepared and trained. Like, I'm going to be... Um, he's going to expect to, like, be right there with him going into danger and stuff. Fingen might well understand this as, like, I'm <laughs> taking custody of a child, Essentially. And so Hador being like, no, it's time for me to, you know, I'm not, I'm 17, 18 years old. Like, and, and I'm Hador, right? I'm like the, a strapping, uh, you know, lad with a, with a sword. I'm, I'm, I'm coming with you on the mission. There would be shock, right? Like we're, we're, we're bringing the five-year-old with us on the mission. I mean, again, that's, it's, it's, it's what it would feel like to them. So that's the other place that I could see this really arising as a major issue, um, uh, and and so having, because I'm thinking about the story with Hador and how he's going to prove himself to them, right, and how he's going to establish his reputation with them during the whole rescue um, subplot that we have going on there. Um, so I would think that we could lead into that with a like, are you even qualified? To, so his proving himself is is it's true in more than one sense. In other words, right, not only. Um, Hey, in fact, I'm, you know, a warrior. But so for him to be viewed as like a, the peer of Elven Kings uh, is sort of true in a different sense. This is not a, it's not just about him personally and his personal merits. It's also about the elves coming to understand how mortals work. Right. They're going to earn the respect of the elves. That's going to happen. But it doesn't necessarily happen automatically or immediately or in all cases. Right. So Hador is significant because he can earn that respect from such a young age and have the elves go, wow, this dude's amazing. When they've been looking at people living their whole lives and going, oh, well, what do they do? (laughs) (laughs) They don't understand. What what is this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hador does have a break uh, breakthrough there with at least Fingen and Fingolfin where they've met humans before that and they might have some understanding or some sympathy for or some growing understanding of what the human condition is but 
Hador takes it another step and says, no, you can actually respect this yeah. quality in this person from even this very, very young age. Yeah. Because they can accomplish things that you didn't think they could accomplish. Yeah. Which um, which episode? Do you remember off the top of your head which episode the Hador proving himself is? Um, that will be episode six, I believe. Six. Um, okay. So it's after the death of well, Bayor. So the news about the 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 mortality, like that's out already? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. De- death of Bayor is going to be in episode three. Um, the Haladin is episode four. And then episode five is more the elvish perspective of getting to know men as far as right. the House of Hadar goes. Right. And I believe six is where Hadar goes. And okay. That makes sense. So, um, so, the, the reason I'm the reason I'm asking that is I'm trying to figure out what would be kind of the evolution of the conception of humanity in the minds of the elves because they're only I mean, it's going to take them a while to really grasp it, right? To really understand. So, right. the first thing that they come to understand is whoa, like they just die, right? They just drop dead in an, a bizarrely short amount of time, like less than a hundred years and they're gone. Um, Once they wrap their heads around that, the next stage will be the Hador stage, right? The next stage is like, okay, so um, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying that elves would use these like utilitarian terms, but like the sort of implicit question on the table would be, what use are they, Right. I mean, again, like, if all elves died at the age of 100, who would accomplish anything, right? I mean, like, I mean, okay, like, you know, Fanor would have done his, you know, uh, script writing project, you know, early on. But, like, I mean, you you just sort of think if, if every elf life were cut off after 100 years what would any elf have ever accomplished, right? I mean, again, apart from Junior Fan or almost nothing, right? I mean, very, very little would ever have been accomplished um, during those first hundred years. And so the natural conclusion, I mean, I think it would be it would be the absolutely natural conclusion for the elves, even really benevolently minded elves to draw. I mean, I, I'm not talking about Carinthir here. Um, even, even really kindly elves would have to conclude that men are pretty useless, right? Like they just they basically live this life of infancy and then they die before they really become full grown. I mean, like it's it's sad and tragic and a mystery to them. What? But but they they would not understand. Like so, there it's going to take them a while to grasp the fact that humans, in fact, grow. so Hador. I'm thinking should be really instructive there. Like that should be the the one of the 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 kind of. Um, Impact, and that's why I think that uh, I'm going back to the whole peer of Elven Kings thing, right? That um, the the step that Hador introduces into the relationship between elves and men is one of the first times that we see elves really coming to understand. Okay, no, they 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 can accomplish the kinds of things that we can accomplish. They can't, like, it's crammed into this short space of time. They don't have that many times to do as many accomplishments as we do, but they, in fact, are like us in that way. It's just, they just, they age differently. It's just, uh, it, and there would, there would be physical signs of that. I mean, they would be physically growing up and then growing older much sooner. Um, but even that itself doesn't prove anything necessarily, right, you know, to the elves. Um, Especially since the whole mortality thing is going to seem like 
a disease. Uh, just, I mean, I'm, I'm not remembering the whole list off the top of my head, but remember the catalog of uh, synonyms for like what the elves call humans, right? Wasn't one of them the sickly, as I'm recalling, yes. something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's... Yeah, it's the, it's the aftercomers, but then it's like the sickly. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's people who die. There's really people easily. who just drop dead for no obvious reason, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, in other words, like what I'm saying is the mere fact that they grow to maturity and then get old quickly doesn't prove that they're worth anything if you see what i mean like it's it just right. if so, anything it could be a sign of weakness we we have to show the elves starting to recognize what the humans do accomplish yeah in the time that they have yeah and so we're gonna have lots of different elves observing lots of different humans in, in different contexts throughout the season and so we have to show some of those realizations of oh wow you built all of this in like 20 years Oh, okay. Right. That's not a thing that we do, you know. So <laughs> right. that that difference in time scale. Okay, they only have this much time, but even though they only have this much time, look at what they've done with it. Right. So that that contrast has to start occurring to the elves, not, not necessarily immediately. Right. 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 You know, can, their well, initial reaction can be, "Oh, well, you're not here very long." Right. <laughs> you know. Right. And, Okay. <laughs> right. But exactly. eventually they're going to have to gain respect for us to have stories. <laughs> right. You know, one of the places where I can see that, 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 um, oh, wow, I can see what you guys can accomplish as a people in a really short period of time. One of the great locations for that moment, I think, would be Finrod's first visit, um, up to Andreth and the house of Beor after their move. Right. Um, when he goes and he visits them like 10 years later. Um, because they will look completely different. Like, their whole society will have completely changed. They will have... Uh, and, and he will be amazed to see how quickly they've changed, how quickly they've grown and developed. Um, how quickly, in fact, Andreth's predictions will prove true. Like, she will say, like, it, you know, we need to grow. We need to learn. We need to accomplish things and do things. And I would think that Finrod, not having this experience with the different pace of life of elves and men, the different kind of development and rapidity of, of growth and change and development. Um, I would think that he would have a kind of a silent reservation when he agrees with Andreth to let them go. Probably in his heart, he is thinking, I'll let you go, but I don't think this is going to work out. It's going to take you guys like 300 years to really like be able to be part of the frontier guard. I think this is a mis... I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to tell my brothers to look out for you guys, but I'm, I'm really worried about how this is going to go. And then he goes and visits them like 10 years later, which, you know, is like, you know, like four weeks gap, you know, as for in his life, right? And he's going to find, like, their society entirely transformed and, and them uh, and talk to his brothers and be like, yeah, actually, they're really helpful up here. You know, they've, they've, they, and, and he's going to be amazed to see what, how they can change and what they've accomplished. So th that, that seems to me uh, a really good um, kind of location for that, uh, that, that kind of moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So the living memory thing. So the living memory of elves can stretch much further back in time than the generational memory or oral tradition of communities of men. Yes. Yes. Um, and this is going to be, you know, the, I, I wonder, I, 
I think I would add a a name to that list, right? Like the forgetful. Um, like they're going to seem, as a people, really forgetful, right? Like that they they. they 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 don't really, they don't even really remember what happened a hundred years ago. Like they'll know the elves will know that the humans who are here were not the ones who are there, right? It's not like they're going to think that individual people individually forget. But as a people, they are they are forgetful, and they're going to see this especially once they learn about how changeable they are, right? How adaptable and and how rapidly they can develop and and build things. Um, they're going to appreciate that. They're going to admire that. But they're also going to see the other side of that, which is how quickly they can lose sight. Uh, they can forget where they came from and what things were like. I mean, that can be something that Finrod and Andreth can even talk about later on, you know, uh, when she's older, to be like, you know, how many of your people even are going to remember Nargothrond, you know, their time in Nargothrond? Exactly. And it's it's not that he, he doesn't know that Andreth was born after Baylor died. Of course he knows that. Mm-hmm. But he remembers Baylor personally and had a friendship with him. And to be speaking with Andreth, who doesn't even remember Baylor at all, right. is just a strange yeah. thing. And like yeah. so it, it's not that he's thinking Andreth is forgetful or not aware of the stories of her people. Of course she is, but she just doesn't have those memories, and he has them. So it's it's a different perspective, and that's definitely something they should talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and the so let's let's put ourselves inside the human perspective now. Um, how would the elves look to them? What 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 would their attitudes towards the elves be? Because I mean, it's it would it's got to be freaky, right? I mean, like. You knew my great great grandfather, like you know, like you can tell me about conversations you had with my ancestors, right? Like that's just weird. Like it's one could easily see that leading to. Okay, well, let me ask this question differently. How much and what kind of reverence do the humans look at the elves with? We start at the beginning in episode one with Finrod being taken for a god, very understandably, right? Um, especially if the people of Beor have heard stories from the Avari about that time when the god came, right? When when Orome came and visited them, you know. So like they, or or if they you know heard it from the from the from the green elves or whatever. Um, I mean, the, not the green elves, you know, the proto-green elves. The, uh, the, the Nandor, the Nandor back yeah, in. exactly. Um, uh, but anyhow, um, some, as we will see, of course, as will come uh, very prominently into the story around the council, right? There will be many of the elves who will, or the humans who will resent the elves, right? Who will look at them as superior and, you know, patronizing and, um, uh, you know, who, there will be plenty of, there will be, there there will be anti-elf sentiment among the humans for sure. Um, But I also have to think there's going to be a general tendency um, towards reverence, even worship towards the elves. 
Um, and I, um, this is just, it's, it's, that's one of the first things that I think of when I try to put myself into the human perspective and, you know, think about, um, I mean, like, think about the ways in which, not just like your own family, right? Not just like stories of your great grandparents or whatever. Um, um, (laughs) sorry, I have a, a newfound strange, um, context for the idea of great grandparents as my own parents are going to become great grandparents next year. (laughs) So it's, uh, I'm kind of still grappling with that concept myself, but, um, Anyway, uh, but yes, it's not just that. It's, uh, think about the, like, the legendary figures, right? I mean, even thinking from like an American standpoint, like, like uh, being able to go over and talk to somebody who would just be like, yeah, well, George Washington always used to say to me, you know, <laughs> like, like, I mean, just talking to somebody who could toss off sentences like that, it would inevitably create this sense of like, whoa, like, Holy cow. I mean, it's the awe and reverence would be very natural from the human perspective, looking at the elves. Yeah. No question. Yeah. And the, the hobbits reaction to elves in Lord of the Rings kind of shows that, that that even a hobbit as uninclined to reverence and awe as say Pippin (laughs) does not get away with, zero reaction of all in reverence when he runs into elves in the Shire, you know, like, right. It's there because how can you not? Right. Right. And as Nick points out, of course, it's, it's not even just their age. It's also the, the physical differences. I mean, yes, the fact that they are, you know, gorgeous, resplendent, (laughs) you know, brilliant. I mean, yeah, there's going to be lots of reasons for admiration, which, you know, so, it does seem to me that there, there will be a general tendency towards reverence, you know, baseline. Um, they are going – I mean, you just can't get around the fact that even once they wrap their brains – the humans wrap their brains around the fact these are not the gods, right? There is still going to be something godly about the elves. Like, that's just kind of, I think, the way it's – the way it's going to be. Um, they are themselves these living figures of myth. Um, uh, and the more they learn about them, the more they're going to, um, they're going to feel that way, I think. I mean, and, and it's not to say, again, it's not to say that no humans are going to think differently. Um, and some, of course, are going to end up re- uh, like object, you know, reacting to that really violently in the end. But um, yeah. Um, what would the what what will the elves do in response to perceiving the forgetfulness of the humans will they try to teach them is that going to be a a big impulse by the elves or are they just going to kind of quietly pity them yeah, I think the idea that Hakan brought up was that elves would notice that humans don't have this memory and would start to kind of censor themselves when speaking to humans, where they might pause and consider, oh, what, 
what can I say to this audience who isn't going to understand my thoughts? Right, right. And like tone it down a bit, right. <laughs> which maybe leads to some of the expectation that elves don't actually answer your question as you asked it. They answer it in this weird roundabout way right. because they're talking around how they're thinking it through right. because they, they're like, oh, right, got to translate it for the humans. Um, so I thought that was an interesting idea that the elves would try to adapt their own thoughts and responses to their audience. Right. Right. But as far as to teach them, I don't think too many elves are going to take it upon themselves to be like, well, since you never knew your great grandfather, let me tell you all the stories I know about your great grandfather. Like that doesn't seem to be the right natural progression. Although there no doubt will be times something like that could come up. Mm-hmm. If Finrod has a scene with Bear here towards the end of the season and wants to mention Beor in that context, like he could do so in a way to praise Bear here. Like, you are as brave as any member of your house I've known. Beor would be so proud of you, kind of thing. Right. Right. <laughs> like, if you wanted, he could. And Bear here would have to kind of just take it for what it is, I guess. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. Right. Um, but mostly the the model for that is Elrond talking about Aragorn as um I think the way he puts it in the Hunt for the Ring is that Elendor was the son of Isildur who was most like Elendor, Elendil, the mm-hmm. Elendor. Yeah. Right. Elendor, son of Isildur was most like Elendil his grandfather. Yes. And of all the descendants of Isildur that Elrond has known, the one who is most like Elendor is Aragorn. Right, right. And Elrond's in a unique position to make a statement like that that (laughs) no one else really can. Right. (laughs) So we we can have that kind of thing come up, but I don't think that Elrond's walking around telling Aragorn about every single one of his ancestors all the time, like, oh, you do this just like that guy. You do this just like that guy. You have the eyes of so-and-so. Like, Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That would just be the, the youngest in the family overkill. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. To a, to a ridiculous extent. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. They, I, so I, 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 I do agree with that, that idea of sort of censorship and even the, again, coming back to the question of teaching, um, one of the things that I, I think some of the elves at least would perceive would be like, you know, there's no, not only is there no point, but it's probably not even right for us to try to create the same kind of, you know, for them to try to artificially pump up the living memory of the humans. Like it's, it's not, this is not how they were designed to be right. Like for whatever reason, it seems strange to us, but you know, Iluvatar has made them in this way so that they do lose touch with their past. Inevitably, they can't help it. So, um, so yeah, so instead of saying, we're going to fix this, right? And we're going to help you remember all the things that their impulse would be to be like, let's just, as you say, censor, as Hakan was suggesting, you know, kind of censor ourselves and, and just kind of let that be to some extent, as you say, n- not no reference ever to it, but, um, uh, but, uh, you know, be, being available as a resource, I mean, I don't think they're going to not answer questions if they're asked, but not uh, being kind of uh, intrusive in that way. 
Okay, so the questions of what does what do they learn from one another? Men learn that writing can be used to preserve a record of memories. Okay, I loved the written record thing um, because here this is the it's like a it's like a uh, you know it's like a you got your chocolate and my peanut butter kind of situation, right? Like it's because on the one hand the elves have invented writing, but the elves don't do written record keeping. Like they don't use writing for that purpose. It's it's not. They don't write books. They don't like they they don't need to. They don't need to to keep a history. Um, uh, so they do write things. Like they have writing. Like it's it's. Yeah. They write poetry. They write poetry. They write letters. Right. You know yeah. to to each other. Uh, but they they don't they don't record history in writing. Um, that's not. It's it's an. It's an art form, not a tool. Exactly. For the elves. Exactly. And so for humans to learn that, you know, they don't they didn't have writing before. They were a completely oral culture before. For them to learn literacy from the elves and then apply that in this new way to say, and now we can maintain records, we can keep records of our people. Um, and the elves themselves would look at that and say that's a really interesting, we never thought of that. <laughs> like that's a, that's a novel use of, 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 of writing, um, which of course is going to become more and more important as time goes on and more and more elves start, the mortality rate among the elves is about to rise. Right. Um, and so the idea that the elves themselves need to, I mean, of course we, we started talking about Pingalod, right. Um, and, Pengalot is going to be recording written history of elves eventually. I mean, it's eventually what he's going to be uh, most famous for. Um, and so I, I really like the idea that that kind of impulse, right, the, the, the impulse of writing historical records, that that's actually in its way a sort of a human invention or a way that humans have, uh, um, have developed um, – developed there uh the, the the humans have taken the elvish technology uh and used it i think that's i think that's a really cool i think, I think that's a really cool dynamic i don't know where exactly that'll come up in the story the writing thing uh, the the writing would be something that happens in nargathrond yeah because that's the group of men who are going to learn it first sure. and have the most interaction with the elves yeah, definitely. so that it would be part of that and the the people they are wanting to record their history in some way. And that also correlates really well with the emphasis in the house of Beor of having the wise person be the leader, right? So the idea of kind of attaching to that, the like keeper of the records, right? The keeper of the stories of their people. Um, especially since of course, Adonel being most famous for an ancient story, right? So having um, that they are, they are writing down, you know, the stories of the, they're writing down their oral traditions and they're, um, you know, maintaining the records for the future and stuff. So that's, um, yeah, that, that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. It also, by the way, um, it also sets up, um, a role for that. When we were talking about what happens to the wise person leader, 
when they get up to Ladros, right? Um, and we have the new active, you know, we're we're training up Bara here to be right the new, uh, you know, uh, active captain of the people rather than just the wise person. <clears throat> but we're still going to need somebody to keep the scrolls, right? We're still going to need somebody to to you know to be you know so that that role ceases to be the one who leads the people, <clears throat> but still is the one who keeps the records. Right. Andret's not going to retire right. when exactly. she passes on the mantle of leadership. <clears throat> right. She's still going to be her role for her people. It's just that the leadership is going to move to a different a different uh, position. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, Nick is asking, do the elves have fiction? <clears throat> Written fiction? No, I don't think so. I think that their fiction is, uh, I mean, they, they do art, right? They do narrative art. But I think that their narrative art is all in song and storytelling and fairy and drama, right? It's not um, written words on the page, uh, generally. That, I would think, would be a human invention. Um, and they do write songs, Rhiannon, uh, but do they write them down? I'm not sure that they do uh, write down the songs. Um, I, I think we had a scene in season three where Dairon was taking the songs and writing them down hmm. right like the with the runes in um because we needed we needed diron to be using his runes right? yes so i i'm pretty sure we did have that right happen right. and it was as a novelty thing like oh this is cool we can write it down right here's the song i wrote down like we and i think they gave it as a gift to the dwarves who are like what do we do with this right. um, you know, it was it was a very people understanding but not understanding the gifts kind of thing right Right. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, so it's like they write stuff down, but it's not that they're expecting that to be preserving anything. Right. Right. Because yeah. they can remember the song if they want and they can sing the song if they want. And and I mean, it's very yeah. clear that the memories of elves, especially given it's not because it's not only the length of their lives. It's also about the quality of their memories. Right. I mean, right. the memories of the. Their they live their memories. Exactly. So the memories of elves are, I mean, like the uh, sufficiency of a written document as a, you know, memory of what came before is obviously vastly inadequate compared to the faintest elvish memory. Um, so it's not only their longevity, it's, it's, it's about the memory. It's, so, yeah, so I agree the thing that men will invent, right? The, 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 the human innovation will be the entire concept of using the written word as a mechanism for preserving memory, because that would have been a bizarre idea uh, to the elves. Um, but I like that a lot. Okay. It's getting late. Uh, I'm kind of looking and seeing what where there's a lot of... Uh, okay, well, we touched on some of these things already. Good. Oh, good. Hey, look at that. We already touched on these. Men frustrated by elves who treat them in a patronizing way? Definitely. Uh, in all of the accomplishments of the elves, in their beauty and wisdom and art? Definitely. Um, the good similarities in their ancestors? Good. Hey, look at this. We already talked about this slide, though I didn't realize it. Um, hey, look at that. Look at where we hit on all those things. I'd literally forgotten every single one so that it was there. So... Great. Perfect. Um, some of these topics we didn't really get. Relationship to nature. Yeah, that's important. 
um, change and yeah. Mm, that's important. Hmm. You know, what else we haven't talked about is death. We should probably talk about death. Um, tell you what, maybe we can come back to some of this so we can do this again. We don't necessarily have to delay episode two. We can talk about episode two and then come back and talk about this again. I know we also want to talk about the, the, the visual design of Harad, but we can talk about that later too. Anyway. Let, let's come back to some of these things. Some some of these things would be good to talk about more. Um, um, nature, change, faith, death. I would add death, right? Death and what does it mean? Um, something that I would commend, and I think I've recommended this already, but I strongly recommend folks who are, uh, you know, participating in these discussions and, and listening to these bro- uh, broadcasts to read the Athrabeth uh, in Morgoth Ring. Um, that is one of the number one texts that I know I am kind of using as an anchor for a lot of this season, and especially thinking about these issues of there is nowhere else where Tolkien depicted most clearly and in interestingly and um you know both abstractly and emotionally the situation between the meetings of elves and men so um definitely i uh that's uh certainly some homework that would be really good to uh uh to use so um uh, okay so we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about some more sorry go ahead Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it's so good. It's so good. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, and it's, it's one of my favorite things. I mean, the Athrobeth is on my super short list of like favorite Tolkien works. I mean, the Athrobeth and Leaf by Niggle are, I mean, I, you know, I have a short list and, and the Athrobeth is definitely on it. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, yeah, the first so, in the fall of Gondolin he never wrote. The first, the first of the fall of Gondolin he never wrote is near the top of my list. Uh, as of course, you know, imaginary things so often are. Um, but um, anyway, uh, so let's so let's stop here. We'll come back to some of these ideas uh, later on. We can bring them in. If on the offhand chance that we don't finish talking about one of the episodes in one session and we end up spilling over into another session, we can always come back to some of these things uh, to round out that session, kind of like we just did today. So very good. Awesome. So we'll end there um, next time, session uh, episode two. Looking forward to episode two. We'll get Arthel out of Gondolin. We will uh, um, we'll, we'll get Bayor dead. No, Bayer will still Bear, be alive. Bayer dies in three, two. right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. But what's happening in episode two is that Bayer knows that he will die in the not too distant future. Uh-huh. He's early eighties. He's not going to live forever. Right. Finrod does not understand that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so okay. that's part of what's happening in episode two is that Bayer kind of has to take responsibility for preparing not only himself for his own death, not only his people for his eventual departure, right? but Finrod. He has to prepare Finrod for his imminent death. <laughs> nice. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Excellent. Okay, cool. Looking forward to that. Uh, and that and more of the Arthel story, you know, watching how we move mm-hmm. that forward. I'm, I'm uh, really excited after our discussion of the Arthel story now. There's so much, so much potential there. I'm, I'm looking forward to working that out point by point as we go through. Um, so that'll be fun. Um, and, uh, and some more frame stuff. So 
going to be good stuff. So looking forward to talking about episode two next time. Thanks. Thanks, Murray, for joining me today. That was uh, this is a this is a, a wonderful treat. Uh, and thank you, of course, as always, uh, for your work. Marie is the one who has been preparing the PowerPoint slides for the last several years and things. She's the one who, uh, you know, keeps things uh, moving here. So uh, Marie is so grateful for all the work that you do. I mean, so many people contributing in lots of ways, but um, you have um, you have really been at the heart of this project from the beginning, and I'm super grateful for everything you've done to help. So. Well, thank you very much. Just thought I would take the time to <clears throat> thank you in the bigger way, as well as just thanking you for uh, joining us here tonight. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so that'll be great. So we'll be back next time. Uh, and um, uh, and I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed. Godspeed.